Welcome to Unlearn, where we talk to industry leaders about unlearning how we go to market. I'm Kelly Sarabin, and I run tech partner enablement and advocacy at HubSpot. And I'm Asher Matthew, co-founder of Partnership Leaders. The old ways of going to market are getting more expensive and less effective. To thrive in an era of digital transformation, you have to go to market differently. Let's find out how. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Unlearn. I almost said the All In podcast because that's what we watch on Saturdays. No way. I was just listening to that. I just had and, and, and that. the guys are like, what the heck? You know? I know. I know. This is, this is the Unlearn podcast. You know, like, I mean, this is where we unlearn bad habits and learn new things from people that we think will teach us some new things. And to that note, we have Doug Landis today. I'm, I'm super honored that our podcast actually has gotten to a level where we can actually have Doug on. So, Doug, I. I think everybody knows you, but just for the folks that don't, you can you just like tell us a little bit about yourself? <laughs> yeah, no problem. Uh, I live in LA, if you can't tell by the hat. All my Bay Area people don't hate on me. I grew up in the Bay Area. I'm still a Giants fan. I'm still a 49er fan. By the way, a little fun, funny note, this is just kind of how I don't, I'm not a huge professional sports fan. So when I moved down to LA just a few years ago, uh, I was looking for a hat that just said LA. And I wanted a black one because, you know, black is is like my favorite color. And so I bought this and everybody, you know, and I wear it back up in the Bay Area because I have to go up there every week. And everyone's like, are you a Dodger fan? I'm like, what are you talking about? It just it just says L.A. And everyone's like, no, no, no. That's the Dodger logo. And I was like, what? Really? Ah, oh, shit. Anyway. I'm Doug Landis. I'm a growth partner at Emergence Capital. Uh, if you don't know who Emergence is, we're a B2B SaaS uh, investment firm, primarily focused on Series A. We made a bet 20 years ago that all software was going to move to the cloud. I'd say it was a pretty decent bet. Uh, early investments include Salesforce, Box, Yammer, Viva, Steelbrick, SuccessFactors, Zoom, I don't know, a couple others, Bill.com. Um, <clears throat> my world is, is kind of interesting in that... Um, I sit on our investment committee. I help us to source deals, due diligence and deals. But more specifically, I get in the weeds once we invest in a company, help them figure out how they're going to scale and grow on the go-to-market side from 1 to 10 to 50 to 100 to, uh, to IPO, hopefully. Uh, knock on wood, although the last couple of years, it's been a little dry. Um, <laughs> although if you, if you listen to, if you were just listening to the most recent All In podcast, <laughs> yes. we're talking about how the new, you know, the IPO market in 2024 might, uh, might soften a little bit, or at least you might have some more companies come out. We'll see. Yeah. Well, and, and then they say, they say that, and then on Monday, there's an article that says silent quitting was the last, uh, like, uh, like was so H1, silent layoffs is what H2 is all about, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah. like, literally every day, I'm like, oh, that happened too. Wow. I literally, like, Actually, right before this podcast, somebody just told me a company laid off 15% of their people, uh, like, yesterday, you know? And no one talks about it, right? How about yeah. this? It's not, I don't even think it's so much silent layoffs. I think it's going to be silent companies closing their doors meaning you're not you don't hear about all the companies that are actually just shutting down altogether yeah. um you know we don't want to talk about it we've had to do that for, with a few of our companies and it's like we're not going to be able it's, it's, it's you, that's the, not the kind of news you want to actually make public because our responsibility is finding great companies to invest in everybody knows historically in the venture world that you know not all your investments you know give you that great fund return um yeah. you know hopefully some of them at least give you your money back at a minimum yeah. but sometimes you just got to shut the doors and take as much money out as you can so that you can reinvest that in the companies that are that are doing well which but i would love to like to do someone should do this as a fun project but just like 
look for all the companies that just that went under that nobody has been talking about. It's like really surprising. Yeah, I, I think, was it I think um, was... like Hopin as an example? Was it was this Hopin? Are they gone? I don't know if they're gone. But I think they were acquired though. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, which we know it cannot not... look like behind the scenes, <laughs> yeah. right? right, right. In, in acquired, venture world, that's called soft but... landing. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, although the acquisition, and here's the crazy thing: the acquisition in that particular case could have made you know some of the founders you know, at least given them some cash, but for most everybody else and most of the investors, they probably lost money, a lot of money, especially given some of their, their, their most recent valuations. Yeah. But yeah, no, and we don't talk, that, that, we don't that talk part, about that. That part stuff. is real. And, and the, the, the number of founders that I know, like, like a lot of, there's not, I, we probably don't have to talk about this uh, on this podcast, but there's other things that I want to talk to you about, but the, the, <laughs> the, the mental state of founders right now is probably like like I mean I met a bunch of founders standing in line at, at SVB because you know nobody goes to SVB and for some reason PL had all its cash in SVB so we're like wow this is gonna be great there's no more PL you know uh, <laughs> and then I saw a bunch of founders there and I'm like wow like like you guys like need help like 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 you know like like there's the there's the people that become founders when they're close to forty and 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 above and those folks somewhat have a really good networks. Uh, uh, of other people that can support them, but then the early the the folks that take uh, uh, the entrepreneurial route early in their year and their in their in their lives, um, like there were some people like really stressed out, and I can only imagine what's happened since then in this in in the world, right? Yeah. And you're probably dealing with a lot of those people. Well, I mean, look, the founder the the role of being a founder CEO is a very very lonely job. It's very lonely. Like you, and it's why it's so important to find other early stage founders and CEOs that you can talk to. And by the way, also talk to ones, bless you, um, that are all that are super experienced or at least have been down this road before. Because there's there's yeah. two things happening. Number one, you know, it's like I said, it's lonely because you you're not really going to go to your board with the with the scary questions that you don't know, necessarily know the answer to, even though you know that's kind of what they want you to go to them with, but. But you also don't want to go to them and, and, and have them lose faith in your ability to actually build this company and lead the company. And you can't really go to your team because they need to have faith that you know what the hell you're doing because we're all following you and trusting you. And so, like, who, who do you go to? Who do you talk to for some of the simple questions? And the good news is that's that's part of the value that I get to you know offer to our portfolio companies, although even though I'm not a, you know, quote unquote, investor or a board partner, often oftentimes I'm kind of under that same umbrella or bucket. But the reality is, is... Uh, you know, founders need to find a community of other founders or other CEOs so that they can actually have some sense of uh, of normalcy, or at least just know that they're not completely insane. I think the other thing that's really important here is a lot of these early first time founders, they've only seen 14 years of frothy growth, right? And so maybe they were an engineer, a staff engineer at Meta, or they're a staff engineer at Twil the Twilio, or like, you know, director of engineering, VP of engineering, yeah. and they, they want to go start their own company. Guess what? <laughs> their entire career, all they've seen is up and to the right. And now they're in this position where they started this company, and they're expecting this kind of the same growth that they've experienced in the past. And it's like, uh, why isn't this happening? What I thought, you know, we've got a great product, we've got a great idea, we're solving a really interesting problem. And it's not really taken off. And guess what? Investors aren't really um, responding or engaging maybe in the way they might have might have in the past. Um, it's hard to raise money right now. It's not to say that it's not happening because we're, I mean, we are so busy right now um, looking at companies and talking to new companies. 
Um, but I would argue that most, like, it feels like the diligence process is even more um, intense because there, it's just, it's just uh, like everyone's risk tolerance is just dramatically yep. different right now, right? Yeah. And yep. so, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's puts a lot of pressure on the now, founders. Now look, you're probably now looking for people that can actually become operators. I'm assuming like when the, the, it was like golden times, right? Like, like you're like, oh, okay, you know, this person can maybe become an operator and sure, we'll, we'll, we'll invest them and hope that they become, if not, you know, we replace them basically, right? But right now you're like, yes, you have to have operator DNA. If not have operator DNA, you're not, you're not getting funded. Is, is that? Yeah, I mean, we, I guess for us, we've always, you know, kind of anchored on the person. Like if you, if you really think about it in the venture business, we're making a bet on the person or people yep. in, in the organization. You know, we are, you know, in, in the venture world, we're not necessarily, you know, technologists or finance individuals. We're making bet on people and on people's ability to fundamentally change the way we work. And so we're making a bet on you to determine whether or not, like you have a great idea and you're executing well right now. We believe that you're gonna to continue to scale and grow and, and execute and out-execute everybody else in the market, out-execute all your competitors. And oh, by the way, you're not gonna be perfect, that's okay, but we also believe in that, in that you're coachable, uh, right? Because like everybody in their first time, you know, in, in their first time uh, building a company, is like there's a, just a lot that they don't know and there's a lot that they need yeah. help with. And, and the coachability piece is really important. It's similar to the way in which you look for revenue leaders. Like, are they coachable? Because if, if you're stuck in your ways and it's kind of like my way or the highway, that, you, you know, that, that kind of, that lack of flexibility doesn't necessarily work in the startup environment. Just but I think Asher make, well. makes a good point. Like some of those characteristics that you just named are constant across economic times. But if you're in a situation where you can expect to very quickly hit your series A on lower revenue drive, right? You can be more of a, of a, a visionary, more of like a strategic founder and, and play that game, right? Because pretty soon you're going to be hiring an actual VP of sales. You're going to be hiring people because you're expecting to get a shit ton more cash in, right? But right now the environment is such where you're probably going to have to get yourself to a little bit more revenue um, yeah. before you can sit back and be more of the visionary and the orchestrator. So I think that yeah. I think that makes sense that the qualities that you need to be successful in VC backed companies as a founder right now are a little bit different than they probably were four years. To your point, Doug, some of those characteristics are, are gonna be the same no matter what, what the conditions, but Yeah, yeah. What's sense. really interesting is is we're seeing a lot of a lot more companies wanting to be a little bit further along in their in their growth before they go out and raise capital because they want to go out and raise more capital so that they know it can last them, you know, 24, 36 months versus, oh, this will last me 12 to maybe 18 months then we can go out and raise again because no one really knows what the environment's going to be like in 12 to 18 months. And so it's like, I, I want to go out and raise, whether that's raising a bigger seed or whether that's raising, you know, like getting the company to 2 million to 3 million in ARR before you go out and raise your A and you raise a bigger A, because you want to make sure that it, that it lasts. So it's, it's just, a, it's just a really, it's a, it's a very different environment, but it, it feels to me like Asher, kind of to your point right now, the role of the founder CEO seems to be more important and we're vetting that person out more yep. than maybe it was 12, 18 months ago when it was super frothy. Right. Yeah, it makes sense. Cause it's like, oh, I've got an amazing product and you can execute yeah. and you know what? We can hire a great team, hire like, a great team. and you can be that visionary. Yeah, totally.
Yeah. And when you say companies are waiting a little bit further, is that because uh, I think previously, if you hit one million ARR, you can go raise. Uh, it was kind of like the 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 norm. Uh, is that yeah. still the norm, or is or you have to get to two or three and then go raise? No, you don't. You don't have to get to two to three at all. In fact, um, but if you get to a million and you're spending three dollars to to generate a dollar, right? If you're if your unit economics are not great, if you're um, if you don't really have a team, you know, if you don't have a team in place or a vision to how this thing can be a really really big iconic software company, then it's going to be a little harder. And so it may take a little longer to go out and and, and raise capital, at least raise good capital. There's always bad capital out there to go raise. Uh, like, you know, people, look, the thing is, is we all still have money to invest. We have a financial responsibility to our investors to put this money to work. And some people are going to be desperate and they're going to throw cash out like they, you know, like they have in the past. But look at, look at what's happened to Tiger. Not, not, I'm not trying to disrespect Tiger, but like they threw so much money around. It was crazy. And now they're trying to sell a, a lot of their positions. Right on the, in the secondary yeah. market. So, um, you know, look, it's I, I think right now it it really is making sure that you've got just really strong fundamentals from a unit economic standpoint. Like, and if you and if you do that at 500k, because you're just because you got to, went from zero to 500k in three months, then go out and start talking to people. Oftentimes, if we see some of that signal, we'll be like, hey, uh, what are you thinking about raising? Maybe you want to do it a little earlier, right? Because like their economics and the market opportunity and the team is so impressive. It's like, uh, yep. yeah, we, we want we want to get in front of this company before anybody else does. Do you, AI, to... I was, do you think AI companies are, are frothy or do you think that, that they're actually also on a more um, <clears throat> constrained view? Or, or do you think that's an exception to the rule right now? I, I mean, look, anything, well, for, first of all, let me just say, there are no AI companies. They're just not. You're not an AI company. AI is just an algorithm that's been written, right? So if you have a unique, if you have a very large and unique data set that you can then apply this algorithm to, and then from that create create a new large unique data data set that you own, then that's really interesting, right? What we re what we really care about though is kind of the workflow components because I'll tell you what, all of these quote unquote AI companies are basically kind of reselling hard. Chat GPT, Poe, or some other large language model, they've baked yep. it into their product. And they're basically a layer or a wrapper on top of it. And it's like, hey, we're this AI company. And the first thing that I say to them is like, awesome, good for you. Um, have you talked to your target customers to know whether or not they'll even allow their end users to use a product like yours because it yep. incorporates Chat GPT or something else? Because a lot of these big companies have policies in place where you can't use that internally. Yep. So it kind of changes things. Now, I would say if you are, you know, if you're in the large language model space, if you're in the API or middleware uh, or dev tools for large language models, definitely getting funded. No question. I mean, look what happened with Mosaic, right? As an example. Or even, even Writer. Um, yeah, even Writer, right? So the thing is, it's yeah. like there, there are use cases out there, but once you start to kind of look under the covers, you start to wonder like, okay, what's really here? What's defendable, right? And, and, and also what's differentiated because, you know, in every category, there's a co-pilot for, excuse my French, but fucking everything. And so it's like, yes, As AI our, our is- Our audience are people that are under 16. So, you know, we can't be using all these words. <laughs> Asher likes, to, like, Asher likes to market to middle school. So. I'm, I'm, I, I am focused on future okay. go-to-market leaders. So you know, you, that's so creepy. So look, here's the thing. 
AI has generated a ton of buzz. And so as a result, everybody's like exploring and digging in. And we have been, the reality is that we've been investing in AI technology companies for over eight years. We've been calling, we call it coaching networks. And oh, by the way, you can just take a step back and be like, dude, AI has been around for 30 years. The only reason why it has all the buzz right now is because we actually have the compute power to, to, to use all of this data that everyone's been generating over the last, you know, two, three, four, five years. Right. So now it makes it really interesting. We have access to doing more with this data. We have some technology that's yep. actually making things a lot, lot easier for people. It's like, this is really interesting. What could be done? And that's the question that we're all asking ourselves. That's why we're, I'd say that's why every VC firm right now is kind of slammed because there's a lot to kind of unpack, right? It's, there's a lot of like, all of a sudden we were just introduced to a whole new forest and we're like, what is in this for us, where is uh, where's where's the gold? Where's the pot of gold there? So so net net, you guys actually do some work outside of the <laughs> you know yeah. wine socials and the the, the yacht it's, parties and the helicopter yeah. rides and stuff we like that. I get it. We don't, now, we don't do any of that. <laughs> we yeah. get in. We now get we after unpack it. I mean, what you actually do. Okay, it sounds like a very stressful job. <laughs> it is uh, our diligence. Our diligence team is working overtime right now on deals yeah. and. Um, you know the things that you have to have to believe, and the and the amount of the amount of conversations we're having about like, okay, is this truly differentiated? Is this team really special? Is this is this product really adding a ton of value? Um, you know, is where is the AI capabilities really truly differentiated and defendable? There's just a lot more. It feels like just there's a. It feels like we're going another layer or two deeper into our diligence process. And my hunch is almost every VC firm is likely doing this because, you know, again, it goes back to that kind of risk profile. You know, we, we need to make really, really strong, educated bets. Yep. Okay. Let's let's move to the different different uh, part of the, the podcast where I actually wanted to ask yeah. more intelligent questions for my Great. over 16 audience, you know. <laughs> <laughs> The audience actually want to be in front of, right? I, so, can, I can imagine they appreciate it. Exactly. So, so the the why I wanted you on the podcast was because you're very plugged into what all the functions, let's say the the go to market functions called sales, marketing, customer success, and let's call them partnerships, right? Like, yep. what all these functions are doing, right? And there's a lot of. I'm really glad you the, added partnerships in there. I know. I have to partnerships. You know, if like, you would like, ask Doug that same question, he would have said it all without partnerships. No, he, he, no, 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 no. I know you actually, guys invested in partner. No, 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 no. no, no. Doug would have People. used the other P word, which is product basically yeah so <laughs> that's probably what we're doing look unfortunately the go-to-market umbrella tends to predominantly just be like sales marketing and customer yes, success yes. you could argue that partnerships falls under sales you could argue that yeah. um but to your to your point it really should be its own its own standalone category the, i think the challenge is in series a and b partnerships isn't usually on most people's radar Yes. I mean, it's just, it's not part of the big three because they're like, I'm just trying to figure out this direct motion and land customers. I'm trying to figure out yeah. how to get in front of them. I'm trying to figure out how to land them and how to support them and keep them happy. Yeah. Right. And, and who's, who's going to do this? Yeah. So I guess yeah. the, 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 the thing that I, I believe, at least it's my opinion, that each function is going through their own challenges right now. <laughs> and it's important <laughs> to understand those and and there hasn't been at least one podcast out there that's actually unpacked 
than by people like yourself who are actually help supporting these companies, right? And so, yeah. so if you take each function, right, and you work with so many people, you're plugged into all of the, the latest and greatest playbooks and stuff uh, based on all the folks that are trying to innovate inside these functions, right? So let's hear from you around, uh, let's unpack each, each function at one at a time, but like what are the challenges and things that sales is struggling with right now? <laughs> um, just, just well, have a small question. Answer in two minutes. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, pipeline is totally dried up. Uh, conversion okay. rates are 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 crashing. Um, deals are getting pushed. More people are involved in the deals. CFOs are getting involved in deals over ten, you know, ten thousand dollars and higher. Uh, win rates are, are, are crashing. Um, what else can we talk about? Like, I mean, I mean, you name it, like basically well, so, so every guess, aspect what, what are, of the sales organization is just struggle city right now. Yeah. For the most yeah, part. And, and, and you have a lot of like sales executives being, you know, asked to leave, right. More, uh, more than any time I've ever heard. Right. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and then, and well, then it's real, right? Cause all of those problems that Doug just laid out can lead not only to executive churn, but salespeople yeah. churn, which creates further cultural problems and training yeah. problems. Well, I mean, look, here's the thing. If you can't generate enough pipeline to feed your team and your team's operating sub 50% attainment, like, why do I need everybody? It's too costly. Right. So like that, I mean, that's, that's the re that's the reality. Now I think oftentimes People have a tendency of uh, the reaction is like, oh my gosh, we've got to cut all these salespeople. And the reality is, is maybe it's because our burn was too high and we over, we over indexed and over hired. We hired, you know, we hired for this quota capacity that guess what? We're never going to hit anyway. So like, we just have too many people, right? Because unfortunately when things were frothy, it was like, we got a triple, triple, double, 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 right? And then all of a sudden it's like, whoa, we're not actually going to do that, but we've been hiring to that. So now we need to, we need to pull back. We need to pull back. Yeah. We need to pull back. And, you know, look, uh, to, to be honest, a lot of it makes sense because we were burning too much cash in, in, in most situations. And if you're if you can't get your burn in line, then you got to make cuts. And unfortunately, you're going to make cuts with everybody who's not necessarily performing. Yeah. And, and at the leader level, right? Like, uh, again, I, I literally just did the data. There's like 37,000 CROs and about 28,000 CSOs. And every four days, I'm seeing more CSOs being hired than CROs. So what's happening at that level? Well, what, well first, let's define the difference between a CRO and a CSO. <laughs> totally, totally. But, but let's say, let's say the, the CSO is basically just a, a leader of all sales. And then the, the CRO is the leader of all sales, marketing, customer yeah. success, and partnerships. <laughs> Amen to that. So here's, here's what's happening. Yeah. Um, uh, so there's a ton of turnover in sales leadership and we'll call it mid to late stage companies. So series, I would argue series B plus or kind of series okay. C and beyond. Uh, there's a ton, ton of turnover because guess what? Revenue numbers have been just tanking. And unfortunately, because revenue numbers are tanking, you know, the, the board and the executive team is like, okay, we've got to make some changes. This isn't working. Maybe it's the sales leader that we had in place isn't able to really think strategically about kind of the entire revenue machine and they've never owned marketing before. They've never owned customer success. And the reality is we need to think about all three of the, all four of those functions, excuse me, into like an integrated revenue machine. 
Yeah. And and the reality is 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 and there's a bunch of CROs by the way that have never done that. They've never owned marketing. Yep. They've never owned CS or partnerships. Maybe they've owned sales and partnerships, and that's about it. So they're a glorified sales leader, maybe more like an SVP of sales. And so the reality is, this is like, okay, if we're going to up level, we're going to up level to somebody that has that maturity to be basically manage all, all four segments of the business or aspects of the business so that we know they're integrated. So we know exactly what's going on from marketing to sales, partnerships to CS and how, and how basically what this kind of people like to talk about customer journey, um, you know, it's really, we gotta, we gotta hone in on that and, and really kind of double and triple down on the data that we're leveraging in order to make sure that we're identifying the right folks, we're engaging with the right folks, the right messaging, we're converting the right folks, we're extending our capabilities through partnerships, and we're actually making them wildly successful and happy. Now, here's the challenge. A lot of sales leaders in their current role today have not been through a downturn. They haven't been in this kind of market. So they don't know what to do when all of a sudden pipelines start slowing down. They don't know what to do when all of a sudden their attainment targets are going way down. And they and like, and like, you know, net new logo landing is like, is now 20, 30% of your revenue numbers. And you're like, okay, great. Well then if I'm getting most of my pipeline and most of my revenue is coming from expansion and upsell, well, customer success owns that. I haven't really owned that. So how do I pull that into my purview? And guess what? Founders and CEOs are going, well, guess what? You don't really have that level of experience. We need to bring somebody else in who does, who could be, yeah. You know, like who's maybe seen this this kind of thing before? Knows before. How, <laughs> yeah. yeah, knows how to knows how to create you know what I would call integration between marketing, sales, partnerships, and CS, and really knows how to how to um, you know financially also think through what's important in order to actually get kind of the unit economics in in line. Yeah. I'm, I'm We've got a bunch of C- we got a bunch of CRO searches going on right now, and it's largely because we're we're up leveling the sales leadership. It's just that time to make a switch. And and would you say that the, I guess I guess first comment is like I've, I've always believed that over time as a company grows, the person who owns all existing revenue is really the new CRO, right? Because they they especially in recurring revenue businesses, so much revenue like sits in customer success when and then that per and then the new business is like fifteen percent of all revenue, but it's the most important because that's how that's where the the land and expand starts right. from, right? That's so, where the expansions come from. Yeah, totally. Right, right, correct. So it's it's important, but the person that's like maintaining the current revenue where which pays all the bills, actually I think is actually the real CRO in, uh, and and now we're kind of like starting to see that because there are a lot of customer success uh, leaders who have already up leveled themselves thanks to Gainsight and all and Nick and all those people because there's about what ten or eleven thousand chief customer officers now and and they've learned how to become operational leaders versus previously they were just like renewals people. Ah, uh, that's interesting. I don't know. Chief customer officer doesn't necessarily come out of CS though. Doug, have you seen? more CS leaders becoming CROs or whatever we want to call it, owning no. all this. I haven't either. So no, I, don't know that I haven't, not, not from the CS <laughs> side. I certainly have come, come from the marketing side. CMOs becoming CROs. Yeah. I've yeah. seen a lot of that happen. Um, yeah, well, Six Sense just made that um, move, right? Yeah, 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 well, yeah, yeah, totally. They just announced it yesterday. Um, yeah. Well, because in PLG uh, which is, which is, companies, which is right, great. marketing, in PLG companies, marketing plays an even bigger role um, in driving part, yeah. revenue than it did in those enterprise sales where it's a more marginal role. Totally. So I, in those type of companies, it makes total sense. 
All right, let's move to marketing. I mean, the, the, the reality is, by the way, but the reality is on the CS side, so many people on the CS side were, are, were not necessarily, they didn't want to be in sales, right? So, yeah. so it's like taking that commercial transaction that's happening yeah. in CS and pulling that actually into the sales side is, is it, are, are, it happens often because it's like, well, these are real commercial transactions. We need to make sure that we're handling them the same way as if we're handling a, kind of a net new customer. And so like the chief customer officer, and oh, by the way, on the on the you know kind of the CCO side of the house, typically they own CS, they own support, they own implementation, they own integration. Yeah. And by the way, a lot of those things aren't necessarily revenue drivers. So the reality is, is what you really need to think about is the things that are driving revenue. Do you pull that out and pull that under you know somebody that actually has has kind of more skills on the kind of that commercial transaction side, or do you go out and find CS leaders that have kind of owned that side of the business before that own those transactions, whether it's renewals or upsells or expansions um, and, and kind of allow them to grow the, the challenge. I just haven't seen many people who have been like, you know, VP of CS and they've owned like a significant revenue number and make that transition over into the direct selling side, like the net new business side. I just haven't seen much of it. I'd be, if anybody knows of anybody that's done it quite well and successfully, I would love to, uh, Love to talk to them and find out more about like what what made them so successful. Same thing with partnerships. Have yep. you seen many people that were like VP of BD or VP of partnerships, and like they, they made the transition over to being you know they own all revenue or maybe even turned into a CRO? I, I, I did it for a startup. I don't know if that counts. <laughs> it's, it's not. It's not common. Let's it's, put it that way. Very, it has happened, yeah, yeah. but yeah. it's not totally. common. Understanding the operations and understanding the plumbing and like actually actively managing a PNL, it's it's a it's very difficult coming from the other uh, fr from pure play partnerships, right? I mean, you have to yeah. spend a couple of years in sales, understand the rigor, and then uh, and that's why totally. these like multidisciplinary people that like actually go from sales to partnerships and then rise. They actually are way more successful than any other other uh, uh, function that they rise up from. I mean, you know what would be really interesting is if you've got a company that's really frothy and you find, you know, or a company that's actually doing well, and you find somebody who's like a high performing individual, you're like, this person's wicked smart and they've got a ton, they've got a, a huge future with this company. Why not? And by the way, the person that I, the one person that I know that actually went through this experience at Salesforce, uh, of course, it's. Um, Oh my gosh, I'm totally blanking. I'm a, it's going to come to me in a second. Um, uh, rats. Um, it's killing me. Anyway, uh, the, the, the point is, it's like, what if you actually created this, um, kind of made them like an executive in residence in the organization? So like you put them in charge of partnerships and build that program. Yep. But once that's up and running in six months, then you go put them in charge of CS and you like yep. you give them exposure to the CS and what the upsell yep. motion is and what support, and what implementation is. Yep. And then you put them into a senior, you know, senior marketing position and senior marketing role. And then you yep. put them into sales, sales leadership, and you make them the CRO. You give them yep. exposure to all the functions uh, as like, you know, kind of an executive in residence. And, um, and then next thing you know, they are the CEO of the company. Yeah. And, and it happens. I mean, there's a number of innovative companies that do believe in rotations for their executives because there's, yes. there's rotations that are happen below the executive layer, but it's not happening in like series B or C companies, right? They have to be a little bit more mature or, it, it, or it definitely, it definitely takes some that. time. No, yeah. it definitely it definitely takes some time to to develop them, um, and I totally can't. I'm I'm spacing on the person who I know, and I, oh man, we used to work together. At, at, uh, oh, there we go, Kevin Egan. 
<laughs> Kevin Egan, who's now the head of global enterprise sales at Atlassian, um, he's on his way to becoming like president, is, is like when he was at Salesforce, he was on a rotational program where they were putting him in charge of like ops and strategy. And like he was a sales leader and they put him in charge of ops and strategy. They moved him over to customer success. They moved him into marketing. So like he's like, they gave him exposure to so many parts of the business. That's the reason why the guy's going to be president CEO one day. No question. But what did he do now? What, so was Salesforce trying to put him into a particular leadership role or did it just so happen that they I think they were, they were, because he was strategic. No, they were developing, leader. they were developing him to be, you know, you know, president SVP of some sort, CRO. Um, they just knew that he had the, the skill and the, and the horsepower to, to absorb and learn. And they're also kind of looking for another perspective, right? So when you take somebody that's got this expertise in a function, you, you take them, like, for example, when I, when I was working at Box, I had so much, especially as a chief storyteller, I had so much exposure, exposure on the marketing side of the house. I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I didn't know all these people existed. Why do we have so many people in marketing? What the hell do you all do? Uh, as a company gets, it's, it's funny. It's actually a funny story. When, when a company gets really big and you start creating these silos, um, what you realize is there's a, lot, there's a lack of communication in terms of what everybody does and the value that they deliver to the end customer, right? And I'll tell you, so one, one day our, our CRO and I um, went to go have a meeting with the marketing, the, the whole marketing team, because we wanted to better understand, like, what exactly is marketing doing and, and, and where, how, what, what parts does everyone play in the machine of, you know, building awareness and generating some level of interest and creating demand for the company. And so we walk into this room, I'll never forget this, we walk into this meeting room and there's like 60, 70 people in the room. And we look at each other and, and like, by the way, the sales organization wasn't even that big. And we look at each other, we're like, the fuck do all these people do? Like, wh wh why are there so many people? And there was like five people in creative and they're doing like, you know, logo design and, you know, and, and building assets for, you know, our pitch decks and all that stuff. I'm like, do we really need five people for that? I mean, not, look, I'm not picking on marketing. It's just fascinating because we just didn't understand. And so we spent like an hour, everybody talking about what they did yeah. and, the, and, and their connection to the end customer. And that's really the important thing is like, what are you doing that's driving value to our end customers to make them uh, wildly successful? Like if you're, you know, if you, if you are in creative and you're building, you know, assets, it's like, how do you, do you are you aware of what it is that you're doing and the impact that's having on our customers. And if you're not, then the hell are you doing here? So given given <laughs> we're on, on the on marketing right now, what are what are some the top like let's no marketing leadership challenges right now? Uh I mean every marketing leader is struggling right now with pipeline. Um, I think I think there's two things and, and partially this is a matter of like who owns lead development, but it's like outbound is really effing hard. We have saturated the market with all this technology and with all these, these yeah. I'm going to call it cheeky gimmicks for like outbound prospecting and nobody really cares or is paying attention um, these days because they're like, you know what? I don't have budget. This isn't that much of a priority and I sure as shit don't want to take this up to the CFO and get my hand slapped for spending time on something that's not really adding enough value or it's one of our top three priorities that we're trying to solve for. Um, but at the end of the day, it's like just, it's like, is our ICP really the right ICP? And I don't know if enough marketing leaders are actually being honest about this, but I suggest every single one of them go do some analysis of everybody that's buying, that's engaging in your product, that's renewing, that's actually upselling. Go yep. find out who they are and do, a, do an evaluation as to who you're targeting. And it's like, 
are you off basis? Because in this market right now, what you're going to find is maybe your ICP that was like, you know, the number one kind of target for you for a long time has shifted because it's no longer a must have for them. You know, you need to go out and ask the hard question, which is like, hey, what would you do if, if you no longer had access to the software? What would happen? Yeah. And if somebody's like, eh, you know, not the end of the world, then you're like, uh-oh, maybe don't <laughs> need to target them anymore because in their minds, we're not necessarily a must have. I need to go find people that say, uh, I couldn't do my job. That's really and good advice. That persona and that industry is the one we have to double and triple down on. Sorry, go ahead, Kelly. That's kind of, no, I was just going to say that's kind of like foundational work, right? And when people aren't hitting their numbers, they get kind of desperate and they're just like more desperately pursuing those out yes. there without taking that step back and being like, let me do some foundational work to make sure this is structured properly, which can be counterintuitive when you're feeling desperate. But to your point, you're just going to be throwing good money after bad if you don't do that work. And, and things have right. changed so much in the last year that... It, your ICP very well might have pivoted in a way that you didn't realize. Well, and then think about this way. You're going to be, the question is going to be like, so you're spending all this money. What are you getting out of it? Right. And so if it's not something that is measurable, that, that is impactful to the, to the company and the business, then stop spending. Right. Cause spending to spend is just being challenged. It's like, are we really getting that much? Is there really, are we really having that much of an impact with SEO and SEM? You know, our SEO SEM approach. I'm not saying don't do it, but like, how are we measuring the impact of that? What is that converting into? And how are you seeing that struggle today? Because I think for marketers in general, some of the trends I'm seeing, right, is this shift to what we call community-led growth or dark social, word of mouth, referrals. Like, I think that there's kind of a consensus within marketing that this is very important, yet it's still very um, lacking in attribution for, mo for most companies. So curious, are you sure. seeing that with your company's kind of struggle between People are talking about these different strategies, but they don't have a good way to measure them. So they're feeling pushed to stick with the. I, kind I, of I feel like you're bringing, you're bringing up a topic called attribution, which is a dangerous topic. Yes. Because <laughs> it's also the worst marketing, podcast. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. So totally podcast on its own. I mean, like, let's just yeah. talk about attribution. It's like, really? Is it real? Like everyone gets so caught up. I mean, look, at the end of the day, the problem is the incentive structure for marketing is like, I need to generate X amount of leads for sales, right? And how am I going to do that? There's a number of different approaches, whether that's SEO, SEM, community engagement, dark social, whatever it may be, content, which is everyone's focusing on. By the way, quit gating your content, stupid. No one cares. I'm going to go find it on Google without having to fill in a form. So forget it. Like, like you know what I mean? Like, just just quit it. Make it available. Make that part of your brand. But the but the problem is we gate it because it's like, well, I want attribution. It's like, who cares? You know what? Marketing incentivize marketing on two numbers. The same two numbers you should incentivize your sales leader on: top line revenue, net dollar retention. Period. If it takes a thousand leads or ten thousand leads to help you get to your top line number and to make make sure that you're actually landing the right customers that are happy and that are going to renew or expand. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. It's a matter of like really being, being clear about what's working and not working and knowing when and how to double down. Right. And, and integrating or partnering with your sales leader and be like, okay, what's working and this whole BS of finger pointing, like, Oh, these, you know, these leads that you're sending over, they're not really converting. Marketing's like, well, your reps suck. Right. Well, that's not fair. And sales you know, like your like, leads suck. Exactly. I mean, it's a total Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross situation, right? But at the end of the day, hey, marketing leader, go sit on the call, go listen to calls of the sales reps and try and understand how the conversation is going and what is 
is arguably not working. Because guess what, marketing? I guarantee you probably never had a call like that yourself. Uh, they're hard. They're really hard, especially in this market. And, you know, we got to be careful about what do they, what do they say? Like, you know, throwing rocks when you live in a glass house kind of thing. It's yep. like, like stop finger pointing and start, start thinking about ways in which we can help one another. Because again, our end goal across the board is driving top line revenue and net dollar retention. That's, that's what we should all care about. Like, what are we going to do uh, to really drive that? One thing, Kelly, I'll add to that list of things to try. By the way, community is a great thing to try. Um, com community is really hard to convert into real customers because you, you put a lot of energy and, and building a community takes a ton of lift because the amount of energy that it takes to keep the community alive and fervent, I know because I've got a community of our own go-to-market leaders across the portfolio. And guess what? I'm predominantly the one that's posting and sharing and trying to <laughs> pull out because guess what? It's not in their, it's not in front of them every day and it's not in front of their <laughs> workflow every day. And so they're like, they're not going to go in and be like, Oh yeah, I just saw this great post. And like, Hey, I need to hire somebody. Does anyone have, have X or what, what are you, what are you hearing in terms of comp plans for SDRs? Has anything shifted? So community is important. Just know that's a heavy lift and there's a big, big expense there. But the, there's another thing that I think that is, is kind of blossoming right now is this no, whole notion called network-led growth. The value of your own brand, your personal brand, your company brand, your customer brand, the value of all that can lead to really great commentary, can lead to referrals, can re lead to, you know, the fact that, you know, most people aren't capturing like who their best customers are and why and how to leverage those throughout both marketing sales and even customer success conversations. It's just, yep. it's, it's lost money. It's totally lost money. Um, yep. And no one really spends enough time thinking through, uh, you know, who those customers are and why and how, how can we best leverage them? Um, I think, I think people get caught up in the fact that like, Oh, if my reps are spending all their time on LinkedIn to build their personal brand, are they going to go off and build a side hustle and then they're not spending enough time on, you know, on our business? It's like, well, what if marketing were building assets for each for, you know, the sales team to actually go out and use to help them build their own brand? That's interesting. Yeah. It's, right? So just on the community piece real quick, I just spent a day at the community summit. It was supposed to be two days and then we just didn't go the second day. And <laughs> what a ringing endorsement of this event. I'm, 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 yeah, why? Well, I mean, I'm about to, I'm about, I'm about to break, break this down, right? So, like, I, I thought that partnerships was like tough. You know what's tough is community management and community leadership, right? And oh, they so are true. struggling because there's no, there's like brand communities and business communities. That's how they, they like, like differentiate the two, right? Um, and then, and then there's like things like what partnership leaders is building, and then things like what companies own. Like Atlassian has an amazing, or Notion has an amazing community, right? And so, but the leaders of those communities haven't been able to elevate themselves to a level where they could also contribute or be become, become a part of the the PNL, right? And then they yeah. can could, could generate, right? I mean, there are ways. I'm not saying there. Are, I mean, when PL is like doing taking sponsorship dollars, then we generate some uh, some revenue for our our sponsors. But those people that came to this conference, right? They were just looking for more connection, which was really the core of what they they thought about versus conversion. And if you had more right, conversion right, right, people right, right. Totally. community, you would care more. Totally, yeah, they would. for sure. And 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 I asked the question. I'm like, hey, what you guys are all here, your leaders. What percentage of your marketing team's budget are you going to go ask for, right? 
and it was like crickets. Crickets. And I'm like, <laughs> well, wait, I mean, this is like the most important thing that you would ask for. But would you argue it's because it's just it's still early? Like people it still, is totally, I mean, it is totally community early. led yes. growth is still really yes. well, early. and that's the connection between community and conversion is tricky, right? Because the whole notion of a community is you have there has to be a space where people feel like it's sincere, it's authentic, you're engaging, it's personal. And it, so it's there okay, are yeah. ways, but there's not an established playbook. And I think there's two things, right? There's building and owning your own community, and there's going into other communities. And being yeah. able to leverage those to build your brand, make those network connections. And to your point, Doug, like empowering your, say, entire sales force to learn how to do this so it's scalable. But then you do yeah. need that back end plan. Like ultimately, how is this going to lead back to the sale? And I, yeah, I, mean, I just don't think we have those established playbooks and people are thinking about it right now, but it's not yet. If, sort of if you really actually great. take, like Chris and I walked out, well, Chris is my co-founder. So like, like Chris and I walked out of the first day, we met with David Spinks, who's the, the, the leading thought leader and Richard Millington, who's actually supported a lot of people understand how to operationalize that, right? We walked out and we're like, we take community, take partnerships, put it together. And that's what, what technically what Doug is talking about, which is network-led growth, because you're going to have your own network and then you're going to rent other people's networks. And you know who does that really well? Telecom companies. They do it really well. Interesting. Wait, tell me more about that. Yeah, so Verizon has its own network, right? But then when you roam around in other countries, they're borrowing other people's networks. Oh, yeah, true. Fuel, fuel lines do, uh, uh, fuel companies do it. They they like, they like borrow people's networks for like last mile delivery of the, of of fuel. Uh, I'm sure if we looked at Amazon supply chain, there's a lot of like, so wait, is this a metaphor? Yeah. Is this a metaphor for tapping into other other people's social networks? But I'm just talking about like the, the network is like when you say network, this is like huge. This is this is almost at the end of the day, this is almost always uh this is like the biggest lesson I learned from lean data, right? When I was there, it's like all of these problems at the end of the day come down to matching and routing. If you can match and you can route, you're gonna have success. And it and and CROs still struggle with that today. CMOs still struggle that with that today. Partner people struggle with that today. Customer success people just like that. And you you have to build your network. So I totally believe in where where all this stuff is headed. But it was just interesting. We spent a day and a half in the community. And we're like, wow, like these people are really struggling. You know, <laughs> I I gotta say, Asher, that is that's probably my favorite comment of the week is. If you really actually think about how how so many problems on the go-to-market side of the house can be boiled down to, it literally can be boiled down to matching and routing. Totally. Like it's crazy. It is so totally. true. Like, and are it's, you it's, matching the right leads? Are you right. matching your messaging to the right you know totally. prospects? Yeah. Are you matching the right leads to the right AEs? Are you matching the right AEs to the right solution? Yeah. Are you matching the right partners to your solution? Like it's pretty great. Matching and routing. I like it. it Everybody it's take is, note. Like, this is the whole, this is my sole reason. Like when, when, so like, think about this, right? So like I'm at Avalara. Uh, I was very blessed and fortunate to be part of the 44 execs that were going to take the company to, uh, to, to, uh, to, 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 to an IPO. And then I have this opportunity to go to lean data. And then my biggest problem at Avalara was partners are like, take my leads. Like, I, we love you, et cetera, et cetera. And it takes forever to go through this like, su- like supply chain of the or this pipeline of uh, marketing and sales to get to the salespeople. And I look at this company and I'm like, man, 
matching and routing. And if you yeah. if you guys like, I mean, this is like nerding out on matching algorithms. But if you think about it, eBay struggles with matching. When pe- people go put returns in, those returns have to be put into the right bins. When people say, "Hey, I want this and this and this and this from Amazon," there's like robots that have to go around and like pick different things, put them together, and send them out. Right? Like. Like if you're, if you're, you know, for my 16 and under audience, like if you're looking for a mate, you have to like match with the mate and figure out, are we going to be routed towards a, a life together or we're we going to, so like, there's a lot of like, like, like my biggest thing, my literally like the philosophical learning from Lean Data was like, all things in life are matching and routing. Well, marketplaces, right? Like marketplaces hugely struggle with matching, whether it's on the consumer side where you go to Amazon and their suggested yeah. products stink because they're mostly sponsored that you have no interest in, but or Netflix, right. right? It's like there's so much potential there to do better matching between the the buyer and the consumer, and that's the same with B two B marketplaces. Right now, they it's usually just like, hey, here's a category, browse through our 500 apps. Like the potential yeah. there, if there's better matching, would the conversion rate would go through the roof. On on matching that note, given that. I have a moment where Kelly has not actually clowned everything that I've said. We should end this podcast. <laughs> actually, I got the comment of the week. Well, like, Let's end well, here like, before we get more into my middle school exactly, relationships. There's like four different points in this podcast. I'm like, oh, Kelly's going to come for me right now, right now, right now. And I'm glad, like, Doug's pretty vocal, so you protected me this time around. Um, but this but this has been great. I mean, I, 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 we've always got feedback that you should keep our podcast below under an hour. But, Doug, thank you so much for coming to the show today and like like teaching us a little bit about Fun. like what the each functions challenges are if it's okay we'd like to bring you back like in like six seven months to kind of get a pulse for like what see what's changed yeah and then well, kind also, of he the didn't tell things, us yeah. what's wrong with partnerships so we got to get to that in the next conversation <laughs> uh, <laughs> he's like nobody thinks well, about partnerships that's their partnerships problem <laughs> i mean look I 30 think, seconds I on think, that uh, yeah i mean like i i just think Partnerships, um, I think there is a perception issue with partnerships and that they are, they're heavy, they're costly, they're time consuming, they delay deals, they just, they, and, and then of course, then they take margin, right? So at the end of the day, it's like, wow, that seems to be like a bigger lift and I actually have time, money or resources for right now as the sales leader or marketing leader or what have you. And so it's like, I'll put that on the back burner until I start getting pull, what we call market pull and still until they're partners that are going like, hey, we want to work with you. Here's how we could add a ton of value. I just feel like there's just a massive perception issue that um, they're just really difficult and they don't add as much value as hiring one more rep who's going to go out and land a bunch of direct business. Um, and so especially, so part, especially think, in early stage companies. Totally. Oh, especially yeah. in early stage companies, yeah. you know, it can be a distraction. So it's like, Hey, do we have, do we have the energy or the resources right now to focus on this? If not, then like, let's just go and like, you know, kind of strong arm our way to, you know, 10, 15, 20 million, and then start thinking about partnerships because we need faster, broader expansion. Um, so look, I think in the partnership community and the ecosystem, I think there's a lot that can be done to start to maybe, reorient the narrative around how partnerships can be value add with, with with very little lift right and also with very little conflict because again there's yeah. another correlation of partnerships which is like oh i bring in partners now i got this channel partner conflict with my direct reps and how do i navigate that there's just i mean it's it, it can all be done quite easily it's just there's perception out there that it's it's harder than maybe it should be 
and uh, and it and it ends up being a little bit more costly. And and so like I think partner folks need to go. Um, we need to do more branding to try and deflate some of those. Yeah. And, and, and the partner leaders actually have to talk about this themselves, right? Like external forces yeah. are not able to do it. They should be stand up and be like, hey, here's the quick play and here's the no conflict, right? Like, right. like the, the other go-to-market leaders are not going to be like, oh, hey, you know, are you feeling sad and lonely today? Let me like help you with this thing. Like the, the leaders <laughs> actually have to step up and be like, no, yeah, no, no, this totally. is actually how it's done. I have a quick branding question for you because this is a perennial debate within the partner community. Um, some people are trying to go with ecosystem-led growth because they want to completely change the narrative and say we're totally different. Do you think that partner-led growth or maybe even trying to go in with your network-led growth, which do you think is going to be the most successful? Well, look, I, I, unfortunately, I hate, the, I hate to say it, but the word partner is just just too loaded with with maybe not necessarily negative experiences, but it's just a loaded term because it's been around for a long time. Partner and channel to me feel a little bit dated. So we need something We need something new. I think ecosystem is a little too nebulous. It's a little too hard to like, what the hell does that even mean? What's an, what is an ecosystem? And like, do we have one? Do we not have one? And how do we create one? Um, I, think, I think network and community really feel a little bit more closely aligned. Um, network, because arguably, look, you have partners, right, that are expanding your reach right? Either into new industries, new segments and new markets that you couldn't get on your own. So basically it's an expansion of your own network itself, right? Yep. And so if you, if you, and maybe that's just a more modern way of thinking about like the value of partnerships is this, this network expansion, right? Whether that's through product or whether that's through, through, um, uh, uh, you know, just partnerships and relationships it doesn't really matter. It's just expanding your reach, it's expanding your network. I like, I tend to like that. Like it. Cool. If, 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 if the so of the officer becomes a thing, we'll attribute it to Doug Landis, you know. There you go. <laughs> he started the whole thing. <laughs> thanks, thanks for distracting us from actually getting partnerships done with just all the network BS, you know. <laughs> just uh, so. All right. Again, thank you. Again, Doug, thank you so much. I mean, you're super lively. And also, Fun. you know, folks, Doug is one of the most nicest people in Silicon oh, Valley for, for like <laughs> people out. He's always around. And, uh, and again, we don't know each other that well. I mean, I think we've met like maybe seven or eight times. I know. And, and I know. But here. as soon as I met you, I was like, I like him and he gets it. And, and he's got a voice for a community that has largely been viewed as, uh, viewed as, uh, as, as less than if you will. And, <laughs> and that's not, that's not the case. Super. All right. right Thank you so much, folks. We'll see you at the next episode. Thank you for listening to Unlearn. Subscribe wherever you listen and visit unlearnpodcast.com for the transcripts.